0: Welcome, everybody, to the American Shoreline Podcast. My name is Peter Ravella, the co-host of this show.
1: And this is Tyler Buckingham, your other co-host.
0: Well, we've got a great show today, Tyler. I think uh, I've been looking forward to talking with Michael Poff, the president of Coastal Engineering Consultants, for some time now. And uh, welcome to the show, Michael. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Tyler. Well, it's, it's really a pleasure to have you on, Michael, because you're going to be as uh, the host of one of the shows, I think that's the foundation of the American shoreline podcast network. And that is the coastal engineering and science show called podcast for building better beaches, which I think is a great name. Uh, P4 B3, I think is, is kind of what that comes down to. Doesn't it, Michael? It sure does. But, uh, Michael, before we jump into a discussion about the show, uh, let me do a quick bit of business. Uh, We are pleased to have on ASPN as a sponsor, Dune Doctors from Pensacola, Florida. Dune Doctors is a small firm, great group, very smart people. They are a dune restoration specialist company. So for all you folks out there that are in need for restoration of natural dunes with natural dune plants, uh, Dune Doctors is a great company, can help you out. And, uh, Michael, they're a hub vendor as well. So that can help sometimes when you're putting projects together. Uh, DoonDoctors.com. Give Frederique Barroset the call. She'll help you out.
1: DoonDoctors.com. DoonDoctors.com. All right, Michael. Well, uh, listen, we are really excited to have your voice on the American Shoreline Podcast Network. Uh, and you are... One of the, you know, Peter and I have worked with a number of coastal engineers. They're all fantastic. We had a particularly great time working with you, Michael. Tell us a little bit about CEC and what you do, the business, uh, where you guys operate, the types of projects you work on.
2: Well, we were founded in 1977 here in Naples, Florida. Our co-founders, Dr. Michael Stephen, coastal geologist, and Chris Dane, coastal engineer blended that science and engineering together and our approach is to develop solutions for our clients that are in harmony with our natural ecosystems and our focused over the past 40 years our roots have i've been in the coastal engineering and coastal geology world and our main geographic areas are the gulf of mexico the shorelines from florida to louisiana And we've had the pleasure of of working at different places around the world as well. And we also have a a core group of marine engineers who do a lot of waterfront recreational facilities and and mostly repairs and renovations of existing facilities that are now kind of antiquated. They have been in in the uh, marine salt water environment for decades, and the steel, concrete, and materials have deteriorated. And so they are spending a lot of time inspecting these facilities and figuring out how to repair them and or do replacements for our clients up and down the coast. And certainly most recently with all the hurricanes that we have been impacted by in the last decade and and more so even the last three years, it's been a tremendous amount of devastation. And so we are are privileged to be working with clients to help them recover from the, the damages that were done. Uh, getting back to our roots, we do a lot of beach and dune restoration, a lot of inlet navigation channel dredging, and we're very proud and privileged working with the state of Louisiana and their partners, rebuilding their barrier Island system one island at a time.
1: You know, Michael, it's, it's, it's really interesting, uh, CEC's approach, uh, as you said, trying to be in harmony with kind of the natural systems, but of course... Uh, we, as a society, ask a hell of a lot of the shoreline, and uh, we have complex waterways and uh, navigation channels that mean, need to be maintained, and, of course, we have our recreational beaches. Go into a little bit of detail here as to how you find that that middle ground between uh, what we economically maybe want out of an outcome and then kind of the natural uh, harmony.
2: Sure. One of our our best teachers is history, and we try to go back as far as we can with aerial photography and surveys, and even inter- <clears throat> excuse me, even interviewing some old timers and talking about how things used to be, and try to look at those conflicting interests at the coast, where we have—I uh, don't want to quote for se, but I hear all the time—60 percent, 80 percent of the, the nation's population lives within. 13 miles of the coast, whatever that great statistic is. And so we have, as you pointed out, Tyler and and Peter as well, that we want to have our beaches and play with them too. And we want to have our boating facilities. And and there is a conflict of, of interested parties there when you're talking about the ecosystems that meet at the coast. For example, shorebird nesting goes on from around March, to August, even into September, and these birds love our beaches, they love the intertidal shoals, and they love to be right around inlets, and so when we are trying to play and enjoy and recreate, there's a conflict there, and so how do we manage that? We manage that through education, we work with local birders who have the hobby and interest and expertise in identifying these birds, and we work with the local municipalities to do educational flyers and pamphlets and deliver them, even sometimes door-to-door. Certainly so sea turtle nesting is, is a very mm-hmm. well-known and uh, an appreciated aspect of what we do, too, and there's been a lot of research, a lot of studies done. I mentioned shorebirds first because that's a little bit newer to the industry uh, really in the last 10 years, the 15 years, but the sea turtle nesting protection measures have been going on for several decades, and and there's a lot of other species. There's the beach mouse and the indigo snake, and there's uh, the gulf sturgeon and the marine mammals, the small, small two sawfish. I mean, there's a whole list of threatened and endangered species that our industry has to figure out how to, in essence, protect, and not just protect during the, the everyday— Michael, is, the, is, the, is the gopher tortoise on that list? The gopher tortoise has, uh, has certain protection to it as well, and they, they certainly are. The, the state and feds have different designations for the gopher tortoise. You find those in dunes. Uh, a great funny story uh, I would like to share uh, many, many years ago up at Stump Pass, and I'm gonna, we'll, I know we'll talk a lot about Stump Pass in Charlotte County because that's where we've worked together multiple times. Uh, one of the ambassadors who lived on the island, uh, he was called. He was uh, there was a problem, you'd always give him a call, and this lady called him and she said, there's a sea turtle and, uh, it keeps crawling up on land and I keep putting it back in the water and it keeps going back up on land. I'm afraid for it. But he races over there and come to find out she keeps trying to drown a gopher tortoise because she didn't realize the difference between the two. So she kept putting the gopher tortoise in the water and it kept crawling back up because it did not want to be in the water. So, no, that's
0: uh, <laughs> the tortoise turtle distinction. Uh, there you but, go. You know, so I that's, think, that's, a... you know, Michael, I, I don't think people realize how much, uh, we demand of the coastal engineering profession. Because like you said, here's a company that you work with and and lead that is involved in kind of every aspect of the economic use of the American shoreline. We're talking about waterway management and dredging, barrier island restoration, beach restoration, dune projects, and then recreational facilities. And having worked with coastal engineers over the years, I think it is an underappreciated skill in the profession that so many engineers are so well versed in the environmental implications of what they do, um, and it brings to mind the Charlotte County Beach Restoration Program that we had the uh, privilege of working with uh, you on over the last uh, you know eighteen months, two year period. Uh, I don't think people understand that the engineers are deep into the permitting process of coastal projects, which means deep into Endangered Species Act Section 10 consultations and working with National Marine Fisheries and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and all of the state uh, environmental requirements. And, uh, you know, I find a lot of comfort in the level of expertise that coastal engineers bring uh, both to the technical engineering aspects of these projects, but also the awareness of the environmental implications uh, that, that that come into play.
2: It's truly uh, um, unbelievable how much time we spend on the environmental aspects of the projects versus the engineering aspects. That's kind of why I switched the name on on the, on the title there for you, because of of building beaches better means you have to take into account all of those aspects. and, And there's a very straightforward design process you go through to design your beach, but when you get into the aspects of the environment, the environmental protection, the inlet management, and all of the other conflicting interests and things, there, there's, a, it's a, there's an art to it. And certainly, the coastal engineering world has had to deal with that. Uh, we, of course, are blessed to work with scientists. And I said, one of our co-founders, Michael Stephen, brought that to us early on in the business. We have several scientists on staff. And then we have a, a great set of partners we work with. And you guys certainly have been part of that and I've worked with those partners too, the environmental specialists and scientists that we either employ or we join forces with because of the specialties. And there's, there's the, well, we talked about more of the, the land-based and then marine mammal-based species, but then you also have all the hard bottom issues where you have these near-shore exposed rock reefs uh, along the coast of Florida in different places that have been exposed over time maybe because there hasn't been a beach management plan in place. And that introduces a whole nother level of of environmental sophistication and, and art and science on how to handle by building a beach. How do you, how do you protect that resource? How do you avoid it? How do you minimize impacts and then how do you mitigate for it? And so, yes, there's so many things you don't teach in school about how you have to go about doing your job. And so we're blessed to have a great team with us.
1: Yeah. You know, Michael, I, I, I want to take a minute and talk a little bit about this hard bottom, uh, and you know in more it, than a minute <laughs> it was one of the real interesting uh developments on the project we worked on in in Charlotte county together uh because uh it was the first time that uh this particular beach was to be nourished, and uh, the project was going to impact a certain acreage of of if eph- ephemeral hard bottom is what it's called, i believe. And uh, I asked you at one of the uh, workshops we did uh, on the side, a sidebar conversation, (laughs) if you had been out and and dived on these reefs. And I want you to share your answer because you have. And they're they're, they're, uh, often poo-pooed because there's a mitigation factor here that's expensive, but they do really harbor and support marine life.
2: Sure. This uh, area had never had a beach management plan before. It's one of the few stretches of shoreline in Florida that hasn't had a beach management plan. That's, I should say, developed shorelines in Florida that hasn't had a beach management plan in the county. And the residents decided it was long past time. And and so as we did our environmental surveys and studies and, and began teeing up the feasibility study, we mapped the hard bottom. And again, it's, it's exposed rock, often it's Tamiami limestone in our neck of the woods, which is basically our platform that this part of Florida is, is built on. And these rock outcroppings are habitat for, of course, uh, down to benthic organisms, microscopic organisms, up to fish, octocorals. There are plenty of exposed reefs that have corals and lots of other even more threatened and endangered species on them. Fortunately, for this particular segment, the species we find are are very common species. They're not threatened and protected per se. Uh, They are species that are mobile as well, mostly sponges and a few octocorals. And so as we mapped it, we realized very quickly that we literally can walk off the beach and in 300 feet, we are in 10 to 12 feet of water on this reef. And that's how close to the beach it is. And you know and that's, from, sometimes it's that close, sometimes it's not. It just depends on where you are in Florida. and in this particular case,
0: no, there was the 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 fact that the shoreline hadn't been maintained and therefore had retreated uh, exposed more and more uh, near-shore ephemeral hard bottom and and they call it ephemeral because it's sometimes covered and sometimes uncovered. But in this case, the retreat of the shoreline exposed more. And then the restoration of the beach required its reburial, and uh, I know in the public workshops, Michael, and one of the things I really appreciated about working with uh, with your firm was the investment that was made in uh, in talking to the public about this really difficult, complex, and expensive issue, uh, which is the mitigation of the hard bottom that was buried it had to be replaced further offshore uh and as i understand it michael that is a requirement where does that uh, requirement originate state or federal or both and how do you mitigate for ephemeral hard bottom resources in
2: florida sure a lot of questions there but we'll knock it down (laughs) one at a time we have a a team of scientists including cheryl miller and Coastal Eco Group and Dr. Chris Temke with our staff and then our our marine engineers and uh, we also had uh, Ocean Seismic Survey and uh, just as I said a whole plethora of team of individuals and businesses that worked with us on the project and did extensive mapping, extensive characterizations of the habitats and presented that because we knew this was the number one issue on this project, A, from a permitting standpoint and be from a cost standpoint, almost gosh, 30% of the total project cost for this segment will be mitigation costs related to the near shore reef and the both the federal and state regulations protect these reefs. And so it it originates from both federal and state in the permitting process. And so we have to meet the requirements, uh, both state and federal for mitigating mitigation means that if you impact something you must recreate that habitat at another location. And typically it's done on a like-for-like basis. Mm -hmm. And the best example we can give you is, because more people are more familiar with this uh, analogy, and that is if you were to want to fill those wetlands, you could fill the wetlands, but then you have to recreate those wetlands on another part of your property to offset the impact or maybe a wetland mitigation bank. Right. Well, for hard bottom, there are no... Hard bottom mitigation bank, so we have to recreate the hard bottom by, in essence, bringing local native rock into the marine environment. But nobody else wants rock in the near shore, right adjacent to their beach, only a couple hundred feet off their beach. So the agencies recognize this, and we work collectively together to develop a a artificial reef that will act like the near shore reef that we are impacting, so that it will be a habitat for the same species that we are impacting. And so we're gonna rebuild this uh, impact, I'm sorry, we're gonna rebuild the habitat we're impacting further offshore in about 20 feet of water using local native Tamiami limestone. And uh, we expect it to to quickly colonize. There's existing reefs out there. We're gonna build a million adjacent to existing reefs to help improve that connectivity and uh, hopefully quickly see it populate with the same species. Right.
0: And in this case, one of the, for the benefit of our listeners and for those of uh, the folks out there who aren't familiar with uh, this kind of coastal engineering project or this mitigation requirement, let me just take a second. The key factor that the agencies at uh, the Florida Department of Environmental Protection and National Marine Fisheries, others, EPA, uh, talk about in this context is what is the mitigation ratio? And which means if you bury one acre of uh, nearshore hard bottom, the ratio will tell you how much more you have to add to compensate for that loss. It's not one acre, replace it with one acre. Typically, it's one acre uh, buried, replace it with 1.2, 1.5. I've seen higher numbers, acres of hard bottom. This mitigation ratio is a really important uh, factor in the cost of, the, of these projects and, and to balance the environmental uh, harm that the project causes and to, and to eliminate that. So can you talk a little bit about the mitigation requirement in this case? What, the, what you think, uh, how many acres do you think you might build and what's the mitigation ratio starting to look like on this uh, Charlotte County project as an example?
2: Sure. I'll talk a little generic first. And that is, you you described it very well. If you could walk down the beach south of where you're putting the beach fill or north of where you're putting the beach fill and recreate that exact same habitat and exact same water depth, then you could get away with the one for one, which was Mm. if we impact one acre, we can rebuild one acre. But as I said, we don't want to build that reef in that close of proximity to another beach because someday that beach may need to be restored. So you go further offshore. So there's a very scientifically based process. uh, The Uniform Mitigation Assessment Method, UMAM, is the acronym for it, that's used by the state. Oftentimes the feds will allow it to be used for their projects as well. And we work very closely with the state and federal regulatory staff to achieve that that scoring. And so you, you factor in the fact, You're going into deeper water, so it's slightly different habitat, which means you have to build some more. Uh, There's a time lag associated with mitigation. Right now, that reef is actively serving as a habitat. When you build an artificial reef, there's some time associated with for the species to come over and start occupying the reef. And all those things are done, uh, again, very skillfully, a little bit of art, a little bit of science, a little Mm -hmm. bit of maybe arm wrestling between the regulatory staff and the environmental scientists. But ultimately, there's enough project history in the state of Florida for these reefs that it's, I wouldn't say well understood, but there's certainly enough scoring and criteria and guidelines that we'll be able to follow the work very closely and, and arrive. And Uh, we have recommended to charlotte county and by the way they're partnering with sarasota county in the project so there's two counties involved and they've agreed and it makes sense to do it this way and that is to build the reef concurrent with the sand placement so that the time lag gets greatly reduced which brings the ratios down so we've we've proposed a ratio to the state they're actively do a site visit with the federal government here in the near future to uh, put them on the reef they haven't had a chance to do that yet and so we hope to in the next 30 days or so do the site visit with uh, the federal staff from national fisheries and the army corps of engineers and uh, ultimately settle on a score Um, it's probably too premature to give a specific number just because a lot of people are still working on it and so but we hope to to have that score um, reflect accurately the fact that a, we did our best to avoid the impact, which is first and foremost. You have to avoid, and if you document you can't avoid, then you minimize, and then you mitigate. And so we have followed that three-step process. We have demonstrated through our engineering design tools that unfortunately we can't avoid the impact. We've minimized the impact, and now we're going to mitigate for it with this new reef and and successfully move forward with permitting.
1: Very exciting, Michael. You guys are doing an exquisite job on that project. Uh, And I want to ask you about uh, the trends that you're seeing uh, in coastal engineering uh, more particularly. But first, I want to have a quick word for our sponsor. Uh, You have just a few days left to get to the American Shore and Beach Preservation Association national conference in Galveston, Texas this year. Peter, this is uh, going to be an awesome conference. We have our banner up here right behind us. We are ready to go. We're packing up, getting prepared. We will be there. We will be podcasting from the event. We will be uh we will have a booth, the Coastal News Today. Uh, website will be on display, and we would love to see you there. Go to ASBPA.org to register.
0: Yes, and uh, we really appreciate the opportunity to get to the conference this year down in Galveston. Michael, I don't know if you're planning to be there or not this year. Are we going to run into you?
2: Well, actually, I will personally not not be there, but Steve D'Artez and Brett Bourne of our Baton Rouge office will be there. We will also have a booth set up and Steve is presenting on our most recent Louisiana Fair Island project, the Cuyah Lake Headlands restoration project. So I'm sure they'll stop by and see you. And uh, I've had the pleasure of going to a couple of conferences this year, including the international coast engineering conference early summer in Baltimore and the state of the coast conference in Louisiana mm-hmm. in, in June. We did that and I presented there, I presented at ICCE and then I just got done with the Florida shore and beach conference. So, it was uh, someone else's turn in the office to get to go. So,
0: well, we look forward to meeting the rest of the CEC team when we get over to, when we get down to Galveston here next week. Um, but in listening, uh, Michael, to you describe the project in Charlotte County, the ephemeral hard bottom work uh, that CEC has done, and I, I th- how long have you been a coastal engineer? Let me just ask you a quick question first.
2: Well, I've been with the firm for 25 years, and I started my profession in 1988 when I graduated from University of Delaware with an undergraduate in civil engineering. Nobody would hire me to do coastal engineering without a master's degree or experience, and of course, they won't give you experience without those things, so I decided if I can't work on beaches, I'll go work at the beach, so I took a civil engineering job doing site planning and Mm. Some fun stuff in Ocean City, New Jersey, at the Jersey Shore. Wow. And, and so I uh, got a chance to play at the beach, and lo and behold, there was a little downturn in the economy. I got laid off, and so I enjoyed taking some environmental law classes at Stockton State College. Really? And then my uh, advisor and good friend, Dr. Nobu Kubayashi from University of Delaware, got me a research grant and pulled me back into school between 1991 and 1993, and I got my master's degree. I came out; the market was booming, and coastal engineering consultants offered me the best opportunity to blend my civil engineering, my environmental law, and my master's in coastal engineering together. And here I am, 25 years later, wow, uh, doing what I do.
0: You know, I think that explains something that I've always found unique about your approach uh, to coastal engineering: is your comfort with regulatory issues, and particularly uh, the public, and engaging in the dialogue with the community. A lot of engineers uh, would rather uh, avoid that step, and it's really an important voice in uh, developing, as you say, balanced uh, and publicly supported approaches to the challenges along the American shoreline. I, you know, I don't think I knew it, that you had spent time um, in this other universe of environmental law and and. In, up in new jersey i think it explains why you're why you're good at it um yeah great that's good to know and it, it, i think it's why you'll be a great host for the uh I'm flattery building. Everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> the building beaches better podcast i think it's a great combination michael
2: there you go well i'll give a shout out to my former bosses uh chris burkett bill burkett john moore and david Battistini. my first job taught me that you work hard and you play hard and then I worked for Frank Riesenberger and Mitchell Kistner at the law firm in Vineland. I don't know if they're still in business or not doing environmental law, but they had, they were cutting their teeth in environmental law before it was even a, a field, I should say, because they were they were two of the trend centers and doing some amazing stuff. And they did teach me uh, some very good specific skill sets. So I was very blessed to have two really fine sets of bosses. And of course, I've already given a shout out to Michael Staven and Chris Dane, our co-founders here at a coastal engineering consultant so i've i've been blessed to have a good set of, of mentors that have Michael taught me well Michael, uh,
1: clearly you have you have uh, been around some just great uh, mentors and that's that is just so cool the community of of coastal engineers is not uh, tremendously large and uh, we we often get to develop relationships uh, within that community that are Uh, incredibly enriching. So that's, that's great. Uh, I wanted to ask you what drove you though, uh, particularly to the coast. Uh, Obviously you're, you must have been interested in the broader uh, environmental science kind of realm, but what was it about the shoreline that, that sucked you in?
2: Well, actually my dad, I have him to thank for it. I applied to University of Delaware for political science. I was going to be an attorney and argue my way through the rest of my career. But when I uh, was applying, he said, you know, Michael, you're so good in math and science. I really want you to do me one favor. I don't ask for a whole lot, but do me one favor and give engineering a try for one year. And if you don't like it, uh, I'll relinquish my, uh, my request. And so I reapplied to Delaware for a dual program in engineering and liberal arts, in this case, political science. Wow. I got to the university of Delaware and they had the introduction engineering class and Fortunately, Delaware is one of the leading institutions in the coastal engineering academic world, and they had four fantastic professors who, as soon as I heard them each give their lectures, I said, this is what I'm going to do the rest of my life. So I really fell into it because of, of that exposure at the at good old U of D.
1: Wow. And and has obviously kind of a serendipitous uh, run-in with this great program, uh, what What did that, I I imagine that, you know, just it's such a great place to work on the coast. In speaking with you, I know that you love your job and that you love being out there, you know, out on the boat, out in the field, take, you know, doing study. I mean, I've, I've, I just know that you uh, find that so energizing. I'm just curious to know, Did this is all just
2: kind of fell into line for you, it seems. They sure did. I'm a farm boy from Amish Country, Pennsylvania. So it fell into line and I've been given such great opportunities here at Coastal. And yeah, and you're right. I absolutely love what I do. And I can't believe more people don't want to do it. The the industry could use a lot more coastal engineers, especially with the most recent hurricanes and all the work that needs to be done by the community. And uh working with the University of Delaware, we, we did a research grant for them and um Jack Paleo, who's now the current director, and I've been working on an initiative. I should say he really did the initiative. I just, I'm going to bring it to Southwest Florida, but privileged to say that we're going to put a wave tank in our local high school. Wow. That will be part of the engineering curriculum and physics cool. uh, science class curriculum and environmental science class curriculum to try to expose more high school students. He got a grant to put, I think, 16 or 18 wave tanks in the. Um, in the high school programs. And so these develop modules for the teachers to teach, he's going to come down and teach our teachers down here in in Collier County how to do it. Um, And so we're trying, we're trying everything we can. We do, uh, we sponsor the student internships at FSBPA for the, I say not internships, excuse me, the student poster and abstracts. Yeah. And contest. And then we do hire a lot of student interns. So we're doing our best. And I know a lot of people are too, to expose our, our young students to the world of coastal engineering and coastal sciences, because we, we need more of us.
0: Well, I, I think it's a booming profession and is likely that trend is likely to continue. Uh, if the climate scientists guys have, uh, are anywhere in the ballpark, uh, I guess we can expect a continued sea level rise and certainly challenges with the combination of that and subsidence over in Louisiana. And, uh, the loss of, uh, our barrier Island beaches, or at least the motion or movement of them. Um, there's a lot of work to do now. And with the track record of hurricanes over the last three years, it sounds like there's, there's a lot to do, uh, in the next few years and and getting young people involved. What a great idea. We're going to need the horsepower. It sounds like.
2: Absolutely. Correct.
0: Um, well, Michael, with that kind of, uh, Uh, background Um, let's let's turn our attention to what I'm really excited to learn about and that is the podcast for building beaches better and now that you've explained to me the the the, the show uh, scope uh, it's really going to be important it's such a complicated issue it happens all over the United States of every project that I've been involved in has drawn a lot of public attention and a lot of uh, controversy, and this is the kind of show that I think can help the public better understand what these projects are, are about. So tell us about the podcast for Building Beaches Better. What do you, th- what do you hope to cover?
2: Well, my goal first and foremost is, is to learn myself. I, this is a new social media outlet for me, and so I'm learning as we go, and that's pretty exciting for myself. I want to be able to share my experiences and then also invite my colleagues in the business, my close friends that work for the companies that do what I do or my partners that work with me, an opportunity to share their stories and and tidbits of information. Uh, We hope to be able to reach a a younger audience so that they can hear some of these things because there's so many things that they don't teach in school that you can hear about. um, Expose engineers or want to be engineers to the world of coastal engineering because it is such a small niche group and, and many people I come across every day don't even know it's a career and, and have opportunities. Um, and this more specific things, I'm going to try to reach out to my colleagues in the, the regulatory staff and the implementatory staff of the Department of Environmental Protection here in Florida and also in uh, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers because of the the major hurricanes, Matthew in sixteen and Maria and Irma in seventeen and now Florence and most recently my namesake Michael in eighteen. There there's an amazing amount of work that has to be done in a very short time frame and there's challenges associated with that. And and we need the public support and we need the people who live in these areas to support their projects and sign construction easements and, and help the local municipalities, help the Corps of Engineers. Uh, attack that's, that supplemental funding that's been discussed uh, at, at the federal level on, on how to help put the beaches back. And can we build our beaches better uh, the next time around to be more resilient and, and address those things? And there's a scarcity of sand sources. And I, what I mean by that is, is that in order to rebuild your beach, you have to find compatible sand that is going to be Matching the native beaches and support sea turtles and shorebirds and the other species, and it has to be economical. And there are places in Florida and in different parts of the country that don't have a plethora of sand sources available. And so, we coastal engineers and coastal scientists, and geologists, have to figure out how to use the resources we have in an economic fashion that can get permitted and provide the recreational and environmental aspects of our projects. And there's a lot to cover, so.
1: It's going to be so good and uh I can't wait for your your first episode. Um I, I I want to ask you about uh obviously there's this hurricane business. You know Michael, I I was actually uh watching the gubernatorial debate here in Texas. It was on CNN. And uh Florida. for Florida, for Florida, down where you are. And um I w- it was astounding to me how many coastal, is- how frequently coastal issues were discussed and brought up by both candidates, and uh, it's clear that the the hurricanes uh, have been a major factor in bringing coastal issues to the fore in the minds of the voters. At least it would seem, but it also seems as though uh, this blue-green algae and red tide wave. Uh, that has expanded out from Southwest Florida has is just on the minds of, of the people down there. Can you tell us a little bit about that and and what your assessment is and how that's impacting your work?
2: Well, certainly the issues are, are at the forefront because of the election cycle and because of how bad it has been when you take into account those those last three years of hurricanes, not to mention the last 13 years, but the last three have been so major here in Florida and, and close to home. And then you build the, the case for the, the red tide, which is a natural phenomenon, but I guess the question in everyone's mind is, is how is it aggravated by the other things that we're doing and by climate change and, and the blue-green algae and the effects of, of man's development in Florida and, and how well, we dried up the Everglades for agriculture and development, and now we're trying to restore the Everglades. And so we have these huge challenges that we're facing here in Florida, but there's there's so many others like Louisiana. I've been very privileged to be part of their restoration program and, and they were one of the first areas to, to come into the national light with Hurricanes Katrina and Reed and the devastation that they did. And then a few years later the BP oil spill and, and the impacts of that. And so uh anytime you have those those devastating impacts their anthropogenic impacts, they come to the forefront of the yeah of the election cycle and and the challenges that That we all are going to have to face together and so from a personal standpoint though we we were certainly impacted and continue to be impacted by the red tide Uh, our guys doing the surveys we unfortunately one guy got very sick from being exposed to it for too long and and we've had uh, reports from other firms and other folks who have had the same thing i know that the regulatory staff and and different staff from the agencies weren't allowed to get in the water uh, because of how bad it got so it's impacted the ability to get work done and complete our tasks on time. And, and it continues to be that way. It um, has spread uh, up and down the coast further than it's probably ever been spread before in the last certainly 20, 20 years that I've been here and uh, listening to the reports. And uh, we hear a lot of reports on the East coast now of Florida, which yeah, it's been a very rare occurrence over there. So indeed uh, it's, it's affecting all of us in Florida for sure. It's affecting the, the economies The I had lunch with a good friend of mine and her husband and her son are both in the the fishing guide business. And um, I know they personally have been very impacted by it. And as you can imagine the boat rental places and uh, everything that's waterfront recreation related has been certainly devastated this season because of that and the hurricanes.
0: Well, I think it, it, it focuses our attention like a laser beam really on the intricacies and the interconnections of the coastal economy around the American shoreline. Florida is a case study in how the conditions of the shoreline reverberate through the economy in terms of, uh, in this case, tourism and hospitality industry, which impacts local government revenues, which influences the capacity of the state and the local governments to respond to shoreline change and conditions like that. It is a it's a big deal and i think getting better at shoreline management and i think what you're suggesting in the in the scope of this show is how to build beaches better and manage our shorelines in a better way is a critical topic uh in florida of course but all around the country everybody's got to get better at this and i'm hoping that you can uh, can light the path a little bit for us and show us uh, what we might do to be better at this.
2: We'll we'll light that path together. Yeah,
0: and um, the other thing, you know, I think the other thing that comes up, and in putting together Coastal News Today, which is the companion news service to the American Shoreline Podcast Network, um, you know, we come across stories where people very much question the wisdom of shoreline management efforts and beach nourishment in particular. But, Michael, I think you and I are both very familiar with the true economics of the American shoreline. Uh, is in, in your mind, is, is investing in the management of our sandy beaches and our coastal shorelines a close call for you? And what's your take?
2: Oh, my goodness. Well, uh, there's so many great economic studies and much brighter people than I with the, the statistics and the research in that regard that show that for every dollar invested in the beach, there's their return is, is bountiful. If we could all invest our money that way and have that kind of return on our, on our investment, we'd all be doing it.
0: Mm-hmm, and
2: yeah. so I can't think of a much better investment than the, the Bear Island systems of of our fragile coastlines. Again, that, that statistic of how many people live within so many miles of the shoreline and the studies that document where you have a beach and dune management plan in the in the face of these hurricanes, how much less damage and how much protection that, that these sandy shorelines afford. Uh, we all need to be working together hand in hand. And my and you've heard me say this uh, to my friends in Charlotte County and, and beyond. And if you spread the pain out far enough, the, the costs are, aren't that unmanageable. And so all the beneficiaries of a project should contribute to their fair share and and everybody should be doing it. And you have the, yeah. the tourist bed tax in Florida. You have different uh, funding mechanisms and, and ways to go about providing the necessary funding. And but the federal government and state governments uh, need to to uh, be held accountable and make sure that they're continuing to do their fair share as well and and i think that the programs that are in place uh, with the state and now with the supplemental funding that's been done uh, the governments have stepped up so in the last three years to to achieve that and hopefully they continue to do that
0: well i I hope they do and i and i suspect that they will uh the key thing that you mentioned and i think you and i are in very uh, close agreement on this notion that if you examine closely what the financial and economic benefits are of well-maintained beaches, particularly sandy shoreline beaches, uh, and then bring those people to the table and educate them really about how their economic interest is served by these projects. um, We can get people to come together on these projects, uh, I was very, very happy to see James Houston's latest economic analysis of the analysis of Florida, and I've talked about this a few shows in a few shows uh, in Shorn Beach Magazine uh, earlier this year, one of the most detailed financial accountings of uh, the value of the sandy shorelines in Florida I've ever seen. And it's, it's a stunning study, and uh, it would be a real shame if we let this asset uh, deteriorate in front of our eyes when we have the capacity to, uh, to build beaches better. Right. I mean, this is what we're trying to do. And I think it's uh, uh, really important that it happen.
2: Well put well said. And, and he'd be a good guest, if not for my show, for <laughs> one of the other shows as well. Dr. Houston certainly one of the premier scientists in the coastal world. And, and as of late, his focus has been on, of course, inlet management and the, the cause of erosion and then the economic indicators that you mentioned and you know dr bill strong is another one who right has done a lot of research here in florida and then you have the team at university of florida tom Ankerson, and their and their group that have contributed to a lot of that so there are definitely some some pretty bright people there indeed i can talk about it and, and we reference their studies all the time and and uh, so maybe a future podcast like i said if not for mind for one of the other shows to have those guys on right. if they're at asbpa you guys should grab them and sit them down and interview them
0: you know we we're going to we are definitely going to be sitting down with folks at asbpa we've got a few things set up we're going to we are going to sit down we've we've secured an interview with paul comer uh who i'm really looking forward uh, to interviewing from oregon state university you know longtime coastal geologist and scientist he's he's a real pro and i think he's going to be a great interview I'm not sure if you're familiar with
2: Paul or not. Sure, I definitely am. And uh, he's actually out there with some really good professors who all came from University of Delaware, and they're some of my classmates. So. <laughs> is
1: that right? he's a good
0: you know, company as well, yes. On the issue of whether the investment in shoreline restoration and beach nourishment is appropriate, I think you, you had said you, you know, that it, it's been shown and it's been proven that the level of impact is reduced landward of these storms that ultimately saves the taxpayers, uh, of the United States a lot of money. Uh, I think that it's a good point, And I think New, the New Jersey shoreline is a great example of that. I think we've seen it documented, uh, in North Carolina over the last couple of years. And I think we've seen that evidence also in Florida, uh, in the last, well, in in the last couple of years as well, what's your what's your take on the performance of of
2: beaches and storms, and
0: what can you what can you tell our listeners about that topic?
2: Sure. Well, I'll use our Charlotte County example since that's our, our favorite one, for the for because of our personal working. That is, in 2003, Charlotte County did its very first beach restoration project, and in 2004, Hurricane Charlie devastated Charlotte County but the properties that were protected by our new beach did not suffer any structural damage whatsoever. There may have been some, uh, some at grade level damage, but nothing structural. Uh, And then we followed that with 2005 and you had uh, Wilma, you had, um, there was another one, in know, five, I forget the other name. Uh, It's awful that I forget them, but there's been so many. Anyway, uh, we had a, another, set of storms in 2008 and their set of storms in 2012 and the county has been very proactive at getting their beach restored they've been blessed to have gotten post-recovery funding from fema and from the state of florida car sharing and so they've been able to continue to manage their program very economical for their people because of the influx of state and federal dollars and so right there is a perfect classic example of of how that investment paid off because of the limited amount of damage that was done and in return, the tax advantages to the county have been huge because the property values have skyrocketed on these these beachfront areas that have a beach managed program. And and so there's the there's the economic study for you that shows the return on its investment. So um, you know, and that's just a very small example of one small project, but when you when you multiply that by all of the projects in Florida then all up and all of them down the coast, um what we're finding now and part of what we'll talk about as we get into the different podcasts is okay what's next for us what else should we be doing what should we be doing better and certainly addressing steel level rise is one of those topics that comes up all the time is why aren't we building our beaches higher well certainly uh, we can do that but but there's so much more that goes into the resiliency of our shorelines and what do you do about the bayside you can raise the gulf side with more sand and build your dune higher but if you haven't addressed the infrastructure on the bayside, because the water doesn't just stop at the dune line. It's, it's going in the inlets and, and affecting the backside. It's affecting the mainland. So there's so many different topics and different things that goes into that equation. So, but we'll be talking about that and, and what's being done. There's resiliency plans that are being looked at. I think Miami Dade is probably on the forefront of that in Florida and I believe all of the counties in Florida are are being challenged by the government to come up with their resiliency plan in the next couple of years. So, I think we'll see and hear a lot about that going on. And, and it's, of course, it's not just Florida; it's it's many many places. And and you guys will be dealing with it in Texas uh, and yeah. talking about it at ASBPA, I know. So,
1: well, Michael, uh, clearly, when you when you start to factor in uh, the management of sea level rise, <clears throat> it for it forces us to look at the broader spectrum and as you said it's not just the dune it's it's the it's the whole uh water land interface and uh it challenges all of that infrastructure and if we're going to look at at big uh systemic issues like sea level rise we should talk about the institution of coastal engineering and um i'm excited to hear your thoughts as to how you believe coastal en- the the profession of coastal engineering and the and the norms and practices within your community how those might change or improve over the coming period uh, to help us address uh, big problems like like sea level rise
2: I think that's that's the the main thrust right there is that the coastal engineering and scientific community will be working with the land planners and the Policymakers on a much more integrated basis to develop these resiliency plans. The, the building the dune higher is actually one of the more technically feasible things to do. Now, there are other issues associated with property rights and view corridors and access to the beach that have to be addressed when you talk about raising elevation of the beach and the dune. But uh, again, those are from a technical standpoint. But when you get into the if you had to develop a resiliency plan for the next, say, 20 years to 50 years, and the planning that goes into that, um, it, it can't just be the coastal engineers. It has to be the entire network of, as I said, policymakers and uh, land managers and things yeah. like that. So,
0: no I question. see a need for
2: integration there. It's it's begun. So, in Louisiana, when we do our barrier island restoration projects. Uh, when we talk about Florida and other places, we're talking about static shorelines. We've developed these shorelines and they're not moving. Right. But the Barry Islands in Louisiana, they move. It's a transgressive shoreline, a dynamic shoreline. And so we account for sea level rise in all of our designs. And so we are uh, addressing that in the volume of sand and the placement of the sand and the elevations of the sand to account not just for subsidence, as you mentioned, Peter, I believe, a little bit earlier, but Mm -hmm. the fact that uh, we we have to address it and... if you have a shoreline that's not developed, it's been documented that that shoreline, if there's a sufficient sand supply, can keep up with sea level rise. Right. And so uh, we, we take the into account on our dynamic designs, uh, but our static shorelines uh, where, where we have seawalls and, and homes and basically the line of the sand that we've drawn with development, it's a whole different approach. So
0: Wow. It's complicated, and I and, and I think you're right to point out the necessity of this integration of coastal engineering design, the environmental considerations, the upland land management and, and land development standards, access. This is the equation that is a multifactorial equation with attached interests in every single aspect. It It's a challenge, but I think there is no doubt that moving ahead, we're going to have to face this integrated approach uh, if we're going to be successful. It, you know, I it, when I it, let's you know I I, I don't want to get too complicated about that, but we worked really hard on a on a shoreline management uh, strategy for Cameron County in deep south Texas uh, in the last couple of years, including upland land management codes and and the uh, receptiveness to building restrictions. Uh, is a really difficult topic for owners and and local governments. But, you know, it's unavoidable in the future. This particular shoreline that we were examining and studying uh, with the help of Applied Coastal Research and Engineering out out of Woods Hole, Massachusetts, this is a shoreline with an average annual erosion rate of 10 feet per year. And suggesting that they not build uh in close proximity to the shoreline there was not an easy discussion and this is in an area uh where readily available sand supplies have not been identified so this combination of engineering and public policy and land management uh i think that's a great topic and i'm glad you're going to uh take a shot at entering that realm over time. Uh, Michael, I think it's, uh, it's what we're going to have to get better at if we're going to be more successful on the American shoreline.
2: Uh, Michael, do you have something we will all be talking about and then definitely something we'll have to be working closely with, uh,
0: before we wrap up, is it, is it, do you have any show guests in mind that you want to reveal or are, uh, is it too soon? And when might we see the first episode of the podcast for building
2: beaches better? I haven't, I haven't made any formal invitations yet. So I, I won't want to name any names and make them feel pressured. They have to. Yep. But uh, my friends, my friends in the business, they know who they are. So if they're listening, they will, they will know I'll be calling them. And my friends and acquaintances within the Corps of Engineers and the, and the regulatory staff of, Florida, and the same thing with my, my friends and, and colleagues in Louisiana. They know who they are. I'll be calling them and right. who, whose arm I can twist to get them to, to right. agree to be interviewed and be part of the show. So Wonderful. as far as when the first one is, as you guys have heard me say, uh, we are still first have... and foremost focused on helping our clients recover from Hurricane Irma here of in course. Southwest Florida. We were devastated last year by it personally and professionally, and many of our clients were. And so uh, we still need a few more months to get that wrapped up. But I'll, I'll do an en- endeavor to first of the of the year on my uh, New Year's resolution will be to kick off the, the first wow. official podcast. I wanted to, of course, have the opportunity to have you guys introduce me and, and get, get my course. feet wet, so to speak. And you sent me my microphone, so I'll have to be practicing my, <laughs> right. my podcast voice. That's and right. I'll, I'll, I'll do That's myself right. the best favor of listening to uh, your other special guests and hosts and getting a little flavor for yep. the, the social media, of the podcast world and, right. and bring myself into the 21st century here. Well, we're all
0: trying to well, do the same fun. thing, Michael. Every podcast host <laughs> on ASPN is brand new to the business. None of us have ever done one. And uh, we're all trying to figure out microphones and recording software. <laughs> So, as I say, we're in spring training. That's what I call it. I think all of the hosts are in spring training. I'm trying to get everybody to get out and throw the ball a little bit, stretch, maybe run down to first base, you know, try to shag a few flies, get your feet wet. Uh, and uh, I, I can tell you, we've, we've certainly gotten more comfortable in the in the month that we've started uh, putting shows out. So, nothing like – we're a learning by doing network. That's for sure. And uh, there you go. It's, it is an absolute – Michael, absolute pre- pleasure to have you as a host on ASPN. I think it is a critical show, going to be one of the more interesting and involved and complex shows. We ask so much of the coastal engineering community. I don't think people fully appreciate that, and I'm hoping that this show will bring to light the many, many factors that y'all are asked to juggle when you're trying to come up with strategies to tackle uh Uh, problems on the american shoreline so i want to wrap up i want to thank asbpa our sponsor i also want to thank dune doctors our other sponsor and as always we want to thank max the sound guy who makes us sound better than we are and tyler pleasure being back on the show with you and looking forward to next week at the conference
1: it's great to be here. Great to speak with you, Michael. Uh, and looking forward to ASBPA next week.
2: <laughs> well, thank you both. It's been a pleasure as well. And good luck next week. I'll be tuning in to the After The Fact podcast and hearing all the good things you guys share with the rest of the community.
0: We'll have to show out this particular interview, Michael will be out before the conference, so it will
2: be available to the conference.
0: Okay. So keep you in the loop I'm sure my my, I'm sure Hollywood
2: will be calling uh, uh, (laughs) right
0: (laughs) we'll we'll just promise you'll whenever you go off and become more famous in in all of this uh, that you remember us at the, the folks at the beginning (laughs)
2: <laughs> I'll do that when, when they have Rob Gronkowski and myself in the next right. action thriller. I'm sure, <laughs> remember these. <laughs> it all started. Uh, thank you so much, Michael. Have a great day. Thank you for
0: taking time out of your busy schedule to uh, sit down with us, and uh, we look forward to hearing the podcast for building beaches better, hosted by the great Michael Poff from Coastal Engineering Consultants. Thank you, everybody.